his dad was a horse trainer um, and his grandfather was a, a bailiff, I think, uh, from Garden Street. And they emigrated to uh, um, Sussex, uh, not far from Tunbridge Wells, uh, just before the turn of the century. Um, and his within, I think, with, within about uh, yeah, a few years, his dad was working for the Brigade of Guards Polo Club in Wimbledon, just uh, opposite the um, Wimbledon uh, uh, Lawn Tennis Club, the famous Lawn Tennis Club. There, anybody who's uh, queued up for tickets for Wimbledon tennis will have seen the park across the road from it, and that's where the Brigade of Guards um, Polo Club was. And he was the star groom. And Jim worked there as a groom himself, along with his brother. Um, so when the war came along, um, Jim signed up for the Royal Artillery. Now, the Royal Artillery would have used a lot of horses. Uh, the First World War was, was mainly... Uh, the horsepower was mainly from horses, not from uh, internal combustion engines. We think he fought in France. Uh, certainly the, the uh, historian of African Stanley believes he fought in France. And the guy who recommended Jim to um, Blackburn Rovers, uh, who played army football with Jim, he, we know for a fact he saw action in, in Passchendaele. But the records aren't, aren't really um, clear about that because a lot of those records were destroyed during the Second World War in the Blitz. We know Jim played army football. Uh, we know he was recommended to Brentford and, and made his debut in 1920. And we know he wasn't a typical player. He was a right back, but he wasn't a typical player at the time. Um, and when he uh, went to African Stanley, um, this is what Mike Jackman, uh, who wrote the, the history of African Stanley, said. He said, um, an Irish fullback, initially recommended to Blackburn Rovers by one of their players, Alec McGee, who served with Donnelly in the Royal Artillery in France during World War I. After three seasons at Ewood Park, he joined Stanley on a free transfer. Only three months into his contract, he asked for a transfer, but he remained at Peel Park and eventually established himself in the first team. A powerful and dashing back, his one drawback was said to be a tendency to get too far up the field with the ball. Obviously, overlapping fullbacks were not appreciated in the 1920s. So, obviously had a reputation for being um, a, a up there with an unusual style. Yeah, that's quite fascinating, his marauding attributes for, for that era of football. It would be quite unusual. It kind of makes yeah. you think of modern day, you know, Andy Robertson, Trent Alex-Arnold, Arnold, these kind of players. But also that was something that was uniquely English later on in the uh, in the coaching evolution and tactics with the likes of Jimmy Hogan, who wanted to bring the WM formation that they brought to Europe and was seen as a very revolutionary style of football tactic for the era. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, because um, it, there's an interview uh, when Jim, was, Jim Donnelly was at Milan uh, in 1938. He's interviewed in one of the, um, the many football newspapers they had at the time there, uh, Football Illustrated, Il Calcio Illustrata. And he describes um, Italian football, and he's very delicate about it, but he described it as static, uh, and he says that basically that the entirety, he described it as static and defensive-minded, and he says really what he'd like to see is the entire team involved in defense and the entire team involved in attack. Uh, and that, to me, sounds like really, really modern. And the idea that you can, uh, you have you, the entire team to defend, and it puts you in mind of Jurgen Klopp's um, you know, pressure game from the front, and of course, uh, Jack Charlton's put him under pressure mantra, 
So I think there were a lot of English coaches around at the time. I know he he um, he was in uh, Istanbul at the same time as uh, Jim Elliott, who had earlier managed um, Valencia in Spain, and who Jim had known at probably known at Brentford. They didn't quite overlap. They were missed out by about a season, I think. But um, but the two of them ended up in Istanbul around the same time. So there was quite a demand, I think, for coaches with that sort of background and experience. And Jim had loads of experience. So certainly the allure of the English pedigree, those kind, those style of play, that those tactics, they were clearly sought after on the European continent. Even thinking of the likes of Patrick O'Connell, who managed Barcelona, you mentioned Jim Elliott, who was, went over to Valencia, and Jimmy Hogan, who was based in Budapest at the time. How did Jim's playing career end to a situation where he thought managing is the next inevitable step for him? Well, his last his team was uh, Brentford in London. And uh, just as his playing career ended, a new stadium opened not far from where the city airport in London is now. It was called the West Ham Stadium, but... It's, it's not Upton Park. Uh, but um, it was a speedway, and it had a, a massive capacity. And uh, they couldn't fill the, the stadium at the weekends. So they thought maybe the best thing to do was start a football club. So they started a club called Thames, uh, Thames Association Football Club. And Jim took it over uh, first as player manager and then as, as manager. And from uh, what we can glean from it... There's, there was uh, a lot of work. He did a lot of work on the pitch. He wanted the pitch to be uh, a really good pitch. He had a, he had parts of it relayed. He had drains uh, put in. So he was obviously thinking in terms of passing uh, a passing game. Uh, when you think of the the state of English pitches, um, certainly your older listeners will remember what the pitches looked like in the 60s and 70s in those pictures from those um, uh, grainy black and white clips of muddy pitches and people kicking. Uh, water around the place as, as much as they were kicking the football around the place. So he developed through there. Uh, the the 10th venture wasn't really a success, and I think it it still has the record for the lowest ever attendance at a league game. But um, but from there or while there, he uh, he took his FA uh, coaching badges. The FA had a coaching school there, which is pretty unusual, and they sent coaches out to not just in England, to the, the big schools in England, but also to the continent where they were spreading the gospel. And we think he was in Belgium uh, shortly after Thames finished, about 1932. And uh, from there, he ended up in, in Zagreb. So I know there was a network of uh, English and Irish coaches around at the time because he was, Jim led the, um, the Turkish national team to the 1936 Olympics. That's the... Uh, the Berlin Olympics with Adolf Hitler and uh, made famous by Jesse Owens' incredible successes. Um, and there's a, we came across a piece in the Guardian newspaper which describes a, a group of English coaches sitting around in Berlin uh, having coffee and discussing the game. And uh, the reporter remarks on the number of, of coaches that were around and, and mentions Jim in dispatches, although Jim wasn't actually sitting at the table sipping coffee at the time. But he certainly was uh, at the Berlin Olympics with the Turkish national team. While there, there's no doubt that he would have come across um, Jimmy Hogan or um, uh, Meisel, the, uh, the head of the uh, Austrian FA. And a few years later, the, um, we have a, a clipping from uh, an Italian newspaper reporting that uh, Hugo Meisel, the head of the Austrian FA, 
had personally recruited Jim Donnelly to head up the Austria team after Jimmy Hogan had left and returned to England. Now, as you know, that Austrian team was a spectacularly successful team. Uh, and it was known as the Wonder Team or the Wonder Team. And they had a couple of exceptional players. So for him to be recruited personally by the head of the Austrian FA for that would have been a, a huge feather in his cap. And he must have looked forward to a fantastic career with the World Cup coming up uh, uh, that year. But alas, that, that wasn't to be. But just going back to his first venture, I suppose, to, to Eastern Europe or to the Balkans, really, when he appears in Croatia, uh, Gradiansky Zagreb is the name of the club. Modern day fans of the game would know it as Dynamo Zagreb. Quite a powerhouse in Croatian football certainly one of the most successful clubs in the country's history. And at that time, they were looking for someone who brought the WM formation, the wide midfielders, into the game. And he overlapped with some fascinating Hungarian coaches who had been taught by his contemporary, Jimmy Hogan. Yes, and of course, the Hungarians went on to make a huge impact on international football uh, later on. Um, but I think uh, Jim would have been relatively inexperienced as an international coach, uh, uh, or as a coach internationally, I should say. But then um, I think when you're trying to dismantle a, a way of playing in a, in, a, in a place like the Balkans, where football is as much part of national identity, and I should have said local identity as national identity, uh, and where there was a... I mean, it's interesting about Jim, about how he survived in these places uh, in in Turkey um, at, at the time of Ataturk, an incredibly um, strong nationalist sentiment in Italy uh, under Mussolini and in um, in a place like Zagreb with the national tensions that were taking place in the Balkans around, around that time uh, and still do to some extent. How he was able to make any sort of living at all and move freely in those areas is, is a great credit to the man. Uh, from what we know about him, he really enjoyed it. Do we know from clubs, the modern day incarnations of these clubs, the likes of Dynamo Zagreb or Fenerbahce, how well understood is he in their club's history as a figure in the early years of their foundation? I think from what we could gather, not at all. I mean, his name is remembered, but even then, like in Fenerbahce, like we know when he left Zagreb, he it was... To Gunez, he went. Uh, Gunez was the result of a split in Galatasaray, uh, where the, the chairman of the club was ousted and went off to form his own club and managed to take a lot of staff, including playing staff, with him. Um, and we know that at that time, Fenerbahce was being managed by Jim Elliott. And what we have is not, it's not really clear what happened, but we have Jim Donnelly turning up as James Elliott Donnelly at Fenerbahce. Uh, in their records but we haven't been in a position to disentangle what exactly the relationship was whether Jim was an assistant coach or whether he was the coach or whether he was I don't, we don't just don't know um, and in Zagreb um, I don't think his reputation is, is remembered that fondly but I think that's really because of the nationalist sentiment at the time that foreigners were just really weren't that welcome uh, in countries uh, which at that time were just emerging and trying to forge an identity. Uh, you can imagine what it would have been like had Jack Charlton been managing an Irish team 
in the 1920s or 30s here, the sentiment wouldn't have been, I think, as relaxed as it was when he took over um, Ireland, uh, what he did in the, in the 80s. And even then, I think there were a lot of people in the FAI at the time who were a bit upset about it, the idea of an Englishman leading the Republic of Ireland team. Yeah. So you had all that sentiment there, and I think that's coloured his reputation. Um, certainly it's Zagreb. It's a bit more murky in in Istanbul. Uh, and as regards his, um, his involvement in Inter, well, foreigners were just banned from top-life football uh, under Mussolini. So when he went to Inter Milan, Inter had been forced to change their name to Ambrosiana, which was Saint, after St. Ambrose, the patron saint of the, the city there. Um, and he is variously described in the Italian media at the time as a scout, as an assistant, as a consultant. But they had um, their recently retired goal, goalkeeper, uh, Castellazzi, was the, had just been appointed coach. And it seems to me, reading between the lines, that uh, Jim Donnelly was moved in there basically to, as a mentor, uh, as a kind of a director, almost as a, what you'd call now a director of football, uh, to get them through, uh, to help Castellazzi through, the, through his, uh, the initial part of his job. And they won the Italian League. They won Serie A, which was, had only recently been established. Um, and their reserves won the Reserves League. So they, they won what was going. Um, but Jim isn't really remembered for that. It's Castellazzi that's remembered for that. So he doesn't get the, the credit as the manager of Intramiland during those years? No, not at all. And, and they couldn't have been because um, football had been weaponized by Mussolini. Um, all foreigners were banned from the top flight. Uh, you had to be a first-generation um, first generation son of Italian immigrants, maybe, who went to Argentina. You could play then. But uh, other than that, uh, football uh, in in Italy at that time was a nationalist enterprise, and the they, the Serie A was set up to forge a national football identity as opposed to the regional leagues which had been happening up uh, up to then. But Mussolini worked really hard to use football to create this um, this fascist national mentality. Survives to this day with uh, teams like Lazio. In recent times, have any have you been in touch with club historians at clubs like Inter Milan? who people have maybe wanted to reflect upon those years, I'm sure fascinating years, with the internationalist club of Milan being hemmed in by uh, Mussolini. Have they looked to see who and investigate who indeed was this Irish guy who was managing the club at the time or supposedly just involved as a scout or a director or some other title given to appease the, the fascist regi- regime? No, not really, but... It, it's too far back, really. It's, um, and you've got to remember that the, things were so different then in Italy. But they even changed the calendar. Uh, Mussolini's ascension to power is, is like day one of year zero. So, um, so and I think, the, the, obviously, the, the, what happened in the Second World War has, has coloured that. So it's, so it's not part, it doesn't seem to me to be part of the, sort of the, the history of the contemporary clubs. Um, but I suppose Castellati is remembered. Donnelly is remembered mainly as a footnote in uh, in those those clubs where he was a part. Uh, and I suppose that's really why he's been forgotten for so long, because nobody has really uh, championed uh, the idea of a you know a, an Irish coach coming from Ballon, a place like Ballinan, County Mayo, and basically traversing the world in a, in a career that was 
launched by the First World War and almost completely finished by the Second World War because um, when he was headhunted for the Austria job um, and uh, the, the Angelus happened, uh, Nazi Germany walked in and, and annexed Austria uh, and the Austrian national team was abolished. The Austrian league was abolished. Jewish players were banned from taking part in the league and Austria star player Matthias Sindelar refused to play for the, the new um, German Reich team um, and died in mysterious circumstances a, a year later. Yeah, it's a very sad story, the, the case of Matthias Sindelar, an incredible player by, by all accounts, kind of a spindly, tall, elegant uh, finisher at the top there and part of that team that Donnelly would have managed at yeah. an upcoming World Cup but ultimately did not get the chance. And was it, just to go back to Donnelly's time in Istanbul, do, do, do we know anything about his language skills or is it presumed that he continued with English during those times in Croatia, in Turkey and in Italy? Well, we've no way of knowing really, uh, but we do know that when he was interviewed in Italy, uh, he was interviewed in English because the, the reporters said so, basically. Um, uh I doubt, you know, having, having grown up as he did in Ballina and in London, in southeast London and Wandsworth, that he'd have got much of a, a taste, for, uh, certainly being in the army uh, as well, he'd have got much of a taste for speaking language, languages, but I might be wrong on the guy. There's also, you have to remember that um, uh, in the process, at the time he was in um, Istanbul, the Turkish, Turkish language was literally coming into being. Um, because uh, Ataturk ordered people stop speaking Arabic and speak the new language, Turkish. You mentioned that the likelihood of Ataturk who for- formed the Turkish state that we now know. How clear would it have been for Donnelly to have been asked by Ataturk himself to represent and manage the Turkish national team at those Olympic Games? It, it's hard to imagine um, that... Uh, it's hard to imagine that a foreigner would have been asked to manage the the what pretty much would have been Turkey's you know first major appearance on the international sporting stage without clearance from the top levels of government. Um, it just wouldn't have happened. So uh, my our guess is that it was Ataturk himself who would have asked him. Now he was pretty successful. Um, his Gunesh team had hammered Galatasaray, from which they had split. Um, uh, a couple of times uh, while while he was there, they had, under his guidance, they'd won the local Istanbul League, which would have been effectively the national league. So he would have had a reputation there for sure. Um, and maybe he thought, maybe the Turks thought that they they just didn't have anybody locally um, who had the experience to do it. So it's hard to imagine. Like I say, the 1930s in in Europe uh, was a, a ferment of of nationalist fervor. Uh, so it's hard to imagine uh, Turkey uh, allowing this to happen without top-level clearance. And his time at Fenerbahce, now it's well-revered as, as quite a, a top-level club involved in European competitions. You know, Turkish football, from doing my own research, I think it seems to, by most acceptance, only have come into being in about the 1950s in terms of a modern standard with leagues, played out so Donnelly was much much more ahead of his time 
when he was involved with a club like Fenerbahce and he did have some success there as well. Yeah, it's, it seems so. And so far as we can tell, like I say, the um, the links with Fenerbahce are a bit a, a bit muddied um, because of the way he's represented as James Elliot Donnelly. We've looked at what birth records and other records survive about Jim, and there's no evidence that he had a middle name. And the idea that somebody in Ballina could have a second name, Elliot, just seems stretching it a little to me anyway. Um, and the fact that uh, Jim Elliot was also at Fenerbahce around that time, certainly in Istanbul, makes a, makes you wonder if maybe the, 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 the two people haven't been conflated. But certainly, he does seem to have been involved at some level, uh, either as manager or as a trainer at Fenerbahce. And they were certainly very successful at the time. And then his time, I suppose, kind of ends abruptly, as we mentioned with the Anschluss. Then he returns to the United Kingdom. And what is that like for him? How does he adapt to a return to his, his country where he well, grew up? Well, in 1939, uh, we know that he was living in his mother-in-law's. She had a boarding house in Morecambe in Lancashire. But he seems to have kept, um, kept his interest in football alive. We, uh, we, we did have a good look, but we weren't hugely successful in, um, in tracking him after that. But we do have a clipping from the Clitoral Advertiser and Times from August 21, 1953. I'll just read a paragraph, if you don't mind. It says, Clitoral kick off with three-goal win. Clitoral three, Darwin reserves, nil. A hurried journey to Shawbridge from Leeds, where he is working as a steel director, proved worthwhile for Clitheroe's new Irish captain, Jim Donnelly. On Wednesday night, Donnelly, a former Axton Stanley player and Baker player manager last season, led Clitheroe to a well-earned victory on their debut in the second division of the Lancashire Combination League. So, <laughs> he'd come down in the world a bit, but he was still, not only was he still... Um, uh, managing teams, he was actually still playing, and by our reckoning, he was 59 when that game was played. The match was played in heavy rain. It goes on to say we rushed back uh, a journey of today. It's close to an hour. I checked it on the map uh, to get back in time for the kickoff. Uh, played in heavy rain after a day's work at the age of 59. So it was some man. That's incredibly impressive to, to still have such a love <laughs> yeah. for the game as well. Yeah. To yeah. from playing it in the First World War within the army to travelling through Europe with it. Have you entertained the possibility that Donnelly may have I don't know, re- returned with some untruths about his own stories and that's why we maybe get a conflated report from Fenerbahce and how perhaps maybe he had some gall, some gumption to lead that career as he did? Well, I, I haven't been able to find anything um, that was authored by Jim Donnelly at all. Um, all the records we found came from newspapers, from clubs, from um, from civil records. Um, you know, the, but absolutely nothing from him. Now, we know, or we believe he had a son, Thomas was born in West Ham in 1930 when he was at Thames Association. Um, we know he married Jane Isherwood, um, and that she was from Lancashire, from Blackburn, where he, where he lived and died. And we know, and we know when he died. But we have 
we don't have anything at all that from by his hand. Um, I did an interview with um, somebody in the Lancashire newspaper uh, recently, uh, in the hope that somebody might write in because it's possible that his uh, his son uh, married and had kids who who might have remembered their granddad or might have had some something belonging to him. Um, but we can't find anything. Um, the clubs we spoke to, you know, they have records. They have records of his transfer fees, of when he joined, when he left. But um, but nothing by the man himself. So if he was bigging himself up, he did a very, very poor job of it. <laughs> what clubs have you been in contact with? Tried to get, get some sort of information from Fenerbahce, from Dynamo Zagreb? From these kind of kind of clubs, or is that difficult um, in and of itself? Yeah, we have, of course we tried. Yeah, but it, we haven't been that successful. Um, the public records in in uh, in Turkey, uh, you need uh, your citizens' number. Uh, you need to enter your citizens' number f- for the searches, and the contacts I had in Turkey were kind of reluctant to do that. The we contacted the Turkish embassy, but. They just don't. They just don't seem to have, uh, you know, a person there who deals with this sort of general inquiry. If it's not about a visa or something specific, uh, so they didn't get back to us. We spoke to the English clubs, yeah, who were very, very helpful. Um, but again, they don't. Yeah, they really don't have that many records from that time. Um, so for us, the trail has pretty much run dry. The Central European era of football at that time is known as Danubian football. And the fact mm-hmm. that Donnelly was even there with the likes of Jimmy Hogan, who went on to mentor the Hungarian team that bet England, that created new yes. football, really. It's uh, such a, it was such a watershed moment in, moving, in yeah. moving the the main power of football away to Eastern Europe and in that game he was a guest of the Hungarian FA in Wembley and he watched over as the team and many of the players and coaches that he mentored hammered his home country and with Donnelly being there the likelihood you mentioned at the 1936 Olympics uh, the, the English managers being around the motivation for him did really seem to be a love of the game and of the sport. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it can't have been that easy. Uh, we, we have no evidence that he travelled with his family. Uh, so it seems that he may have been living on his own, um, you know, far from his uh, his wife and son. And that can't have been easy. Um, the, and as I said before, the atmosphere in um, in Central Europe around then was really tense. Uh, and you know the fact that he, the fact that he won Syria with Inter uh, and basically couldn't you know what I mean? Nobody reported it. You know what I mean? It doesn't appear in any English newspapers of the time or any Irish newspapers. Um, it just shows you how you know you, you really had to mind your p's and q's, uh, not step out of uh, out of line, uh, or or you'd be gone. And there were dangerous times as well. So. And travel was difficult, of course. I think you have to give the guy credit. Uh, from the the few pictures we have, uh, there's a few pictures been published in Italy at the time. He's uh, he seems a, a relaxed, you know, sort of guy you'd see any day in Pear Street in Balana. Uh, in his, yeah, looks maybe a bit old, but then he did lie about his age, didn't he? 
Yeah, he, he lied about his age when he was at Accrington Stanley, isn't it? Yes, yeah, he, he cut his, um, his age by six years, I think. A lot of, uh, a lot of media attention, rather, on the town of Belna this week due to uh, the death of Jack Charlton and his funeral taking place. A mural has been erected to him uh, at the ridge pool overlooking the River Moy as a fitting tribute for him. But someone who is a son of the town, like Jim Donnelly, who won the league with Inter Milan, he brought Turkey to their first ever international tournament. So being a Jack Charlton of a country so yeah. far to the east of Europe is quite remarkable. Do you, do you think, or is there an appetite for him to be remembered within the town? I'm sure that I'm sure there is. You know, I, I suppose the the question is: Can we can we get something more substantial, more substantial information, more detail? Um, we it, with the resources that we have at the North Mayo Heritage Centre, we haven't been able to to get uh, yeah to send somebody to Istanbul, for example, which would have, would have been nice, or to send somebody to Milan to talk to people. Um, there's only so much you can do by email and by phone. Uh, so, it would, yeah, it would be nice. And I think uh, maybe something to think about because I, I, one of the things that you see developing in, in Ballina is uh, a really rich uh, cultural uh, quarter between the Mary Robinson Museum and the Jackie Clark Museum, the Ballina Art Centre. You can see that yeah, there's, a, there's a, maybe a coming together of a, of a heritage, uh, a sort of a cultural, um, I don't know what to call it really, uh, side to Ballina that we haven't really seen before. And I think Donnelly and Charlton can really add to that. Derek O'Flaherty of the North Mayo Heritage Centre, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.